seven, six, six, Welcome to IR Talk, a podcast on the history, theory, and practice of international relations. I'm your host, Elon Kluger. This week, I spoke with Professor Megan Black. Professor Black is an associate professor of history at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She's the author of The Global Interior, Mineral Frontiers and American Power, which is the subject of our conversation this week. I enjoyed this conversation as the thesis of the book, the Interior Department often took on a role in foreign policy and was exterior in that sense, is both really interesting and really engaging and makes for quite good reading as well as great discussion. One last note, if you enjoy my podcast, I would love it if you would leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as it helps others find the show. Thank you. When did you discover all of the overseas Interior Department activities? It was in many ways, an accident. I was a graduate student at George Washington University and was in the process of starting dissertation work. I was interested in minerals as a topic and happened to be spending a lot of time at the National Archives, conveniently down the street from my campus. And I began by encountering these films with titles like Evolution of the Oil Industry or A Story of Copper that I found to be really interesting and realized as I got into the textual documents behind these films from the 1950s that they were circulating to places like Afghanistan, Colombia, Egypt, and uh, elsewhere. And this to me seemed a little odd, but the further I looked into it, I realized that the films were traveling overseas in part because U.S. Interior Department personnel with expertise in minerals and extraction were traveling overseas. And this to me seemed a bit surprising. The Department of the Interior declares in its very name that it is focused on inward issues. So it struck me as a contradiction that warranted further investigation. And the more I looked into this, the more I realized that actually from the 19th century origins of the department, actually in the wake of the war with Mexico in 1848, the department had long been kind of pushing into zones that were beyond the frame of the nation state, doing work that had a lot to do with natural resources, including minerals. You have a PhD in American studies. So how did that more uh, interdisciplinary approach affect the study of the Interior Department? Right. Well, I think as that little vignette I offered you suggests, my curiosities were tied to a kind of form of cultural production that might not have fit so easily in the main stream of international relations. The kinds of objects that are often studied in this discipline, as you know, involve things like policy or presidential speeches, and then the memoranda and correspondence behind that. Those things are certainly interesting. I entered into graduate school at a moment when people had been asking about ideologies and the the kind of cultures of U.S. foreign relations, U.S. imperialism. And in many ways, I I was coming from an English major with a history minor in in my kind of college experience to then, you know, a, a passion for the subject of foreign relations. And I found that 
looking at multiple sources was enriching my understanding of what was going on and perhaps helped me to see something that had often fallen from view from other kinds of, of scholarly analysis of, say, the 20th century United States as the United States was unfolding further in the world. Was there a problem just with how sort of siloed the study of foreign relations is that you couldn't um, write as much about environmental history? Was there issues with sort of combining those? I think initially I had my own learning to do, perhaps in ways that mirror what the field is going through as we try to center the environment in the study of global processes. So in graduate school, I may have been initially writing about the interior department, but and of course I knew it was altering material landscapes, but I was thinking of it in a kind of, in the context of expansion, which is often a concern of foreign relations, you know, going back to William Appleman Williams in the 1950s even. So over time, however, I was learning from environmental historians who would kind of engage with my work and say, oh, you know, this has so much to do with what's going on in our field, which is, you know, has long been asking about how altering the environment, trying to control non-human nature in particular has been central to different kinds of nation building processes. They were often talking about, say, the continental United States, the continental West in North America. And, and in many ways, I, I learned so much from the literature in the fields of environmental history, Native American history, Western history, to make sense of an entity that also had an incredibly international portfolio over the 20th century and, and viewed those zones, the kind of domestic and foreign as being fundamentally connected around the problem of natural resources. So there, I think, was receptivity to bringing environment to foreign relations. And surely there were others who helped to um, pave the way. There are folks like the Australian scholar Ian Tyrell, whose work is often bridging these disciplines. Kirk Dorsey has worked on Save the Whales, as a book he wrote, a, a very globe-spanning NGO. And he had written a Bernath lecture, which is a, a kind of a piece of distinction that appears in diplomatic history, the, the journal of uh, the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations, about the value of bringing material landscapes and environmental analysis to bear on questions of diplomatic history. So that was like 2005 or so. And, and from that point, there were there was certainly a cohort of other great thinkers who I was able to kind of learn from and compare notes with. Though I do think by the time my book came out, you know, this, this was something that maybe was helping to open doors even further for people to cross into both subfields and, and have something to say. I think there still remains work to be done in you know, ensuring that students who are interested in international relations and diplomatic history are taking on the tools of environmental analysis and vice versa, right? I think both, both fields can benefit from just expanding that, that curiosity and methodological work. To what extent was it more efficient to have this sort of foreign relations mineral acquisition and development within the interior department? Because oftentimes even sort of the state department is shaped by domestic incentives. So how did it make sense to have even both of those combined since it's in the same uh, department? I think that they were always figuring it out over time and you might be uh, unsurprised to, to know that there were contexts where the Department of the Interior was working 
well with the State Department and other times when maybe their purposes were, were moving in different directions. So in other words, I, I noted a decent amount of tension as much as collaboration across different arms of the federal bureaucracy based on who their primary you know, audiences are or stakeholders are. So, you know, state is is rightly worried about the international um, stature of the United States. And the Interior Department might be more concerned about appeasing American corporations that were a key stakeholder. Not that these two are always, you know, framed as being separate, but but I think that in the kind of context of international development, Interior's work was very much nested under the Technical Cooperation Administration. It sort of had its duty to uphold the the credo of technical assistance that their work needed to move towards social improvement. But I also saw how Interior officials and mineral experts understood that strategic minerals mattered to the U.S. state and to their corporate allies in ways that unfortunately they viewed as as a means to justify not living up to that credo of social improvement. In other words, officials acknowledged that these mineral programs they were putting forward didn't yield the kinds of local benefits that they had promised that they had hoped in the kind of initial policy um, imagining stages. And yet they, they carried on with this sense that no matter its adverse effects or at least not you know, positive effects overseas, it was valuable, especially in a Cold War context. So that's just one example from the 1950s period in particular that can speak to some of the, the different stakeholders that the department was appeasing and how that could both be nested under something like the State Department's agenda and working in tension with it. The cause of the global interior department, did that change from a conception of, I don't know, more humanitarian or adding technical assistance to justifying it in terms of national interest? Or was mm-hmm. national interest always behind that and they just you made it more desirable by not defining it in that way? I think that the broad trend is that national interest was very frequently at the center, even as I think people can hold in their, in their heads, this idea that kind of the, the national interest first can work in tandem with international goals. And certainly this is something that interior secretaries who were pretty full-throated in their endorsement of the department's international development role, for instance, they were clear that by pursuing natural resources across borders, this would shore up the United States as the leader of the free world. So they were very quick to kind of dissolve a boundary between the national interest and international goals with this logic that insisted that resources really belong to all. This is where I kind of talk about that idea of resource globalism but they also are <laughs> clear that not all, not all people are equal in their ability to develop those resources. And that's where it gets a little tricky, where you can see that the national interest supersedes the international goals in the sense that there's a, a consistent assumption that U.S. environmental management, we might call them environmental managers or um, technical experts, were the the proper stewards of those resources. So one way to think about it is that it's 
it's kind of a selective globalism, right? Like it's globalist in its sort of, in its vision for and justification for the global portfolio of U.S. technical experts, but very frequently, and, and often to domestic audiences too, because they're also trying to appease Congress and many voters, they would say, but this is clearly meant to help us and certainly to shore up U.S. national strength in relation to a Soviet competitor in the Cold War context. To what extent was the uh, Interior Department sort of leading the charge in sort of getting at the beginning the War Department and then later State Department and Department of Defense? To what extent were they getting them to sort of acquire territory or create agreements so that they could get the minerals? Or was it mostly like in the case in the Philippines, they were following behind and then working once they had the territory? I see the department as often in the wake of something like military power. And it's a part of a shift in logic from the kind of broader federal machinery around warfare versus civilian administration. Ongoing war is a problem for many reasons. I mean, we can talk about the local experience of war first and foremost that creates and yields devastation that involves people, but also environment. So the Philippines is an example where we can see that in place, but that also politically, the different different governments, different administrations faced pressure to wrap up a war. I think that this is probably fresh on our minds in in this kind of context of the war in Afghanistan, presumably reaching a kind of end that we see the reverberations continuing nonetheless. And in the context of say, continental expansion in the 19th century, wars with Indian nations were ongoing and there was pressure on uh, Washington uh, as in you know Washington DC to to live up to a kind of moral vision of US power that had long been in place so this is part of where the interior department even emerges from out of this need to to find a pathway out of war find a, an exit strategy that moves into a different mode of power one that is not without violence as we have learned in the context of say indian boarding schools is like an example that is being talked about a lot now that's something the interior department would come to take on as it was also helping with the problem of settling other forms of us citizens in the american west as it was working on resource surveys and identifying sources of valuable minerals and and broadly doing the work of mapping and bringing in this new territory after the Mexican-American War. So carrying that forward, there are are other examples where the department is kind of ready with a skill set. And sometimes there are leaders who are charismatic and might have more of an active role driving it. And we see that in Harold Ickes in the New Deal, who was very eager to assume new roles, including Petroleum Administrator for Defense and War, and to recommend the department as like a, a natural fit for taking on a new role. That doesn't mean that, say, what would become the Department of Defense is not also involved often in these examples. So like management of overseas territories um, in the 1930s transferred from War Department and Navy to the Interior Department. And then there are some examples where while the military and its 
R&D apparatus is around, like in the space race, that there was a kind of separate civilian effort that's the Interior Department and its leaders in, in the 60s, this was Stuart Udall in particular, helped to sort of prod along this satellite that could be very useful to mineral prospecting. And there, it's, it's less the case that the, the military is there first, though it is certainly true that military R&D in a much more secretive context was involved in reconnaissance satellites, for instance. How did the Interior Department see itself? So some of some of it in terms of maybe domestic activity, I mean, some of that is also very questionable, but in terms of overseas extractive imperialism, how did it see itself? And I know you quote... Um, the assistant secretary, Vernon Northrup, who was talking about expanding the frontier and viewing minerals as the new frontier or the expansion. But how did overall, how did it see itself? Right. Well, there are and were thousands of representatives of the Interior Department's power. And sometimes I'm thinking about the Interior Department as a, an institution, an entity. And sometimes like with this question, it is important to think about the people who move through that brick and mortar institution. I have been really impressed by like experiences with officials in the kind of current context who are who are trying very much to do a good job, right? So so I think about that as a lesson in applying it backward and thinking about people who might have been at the cutting edge of US expansionism. Many of them viewed their activities as natural and good. You know, they didn't wake up in the morning and think how can I harm others and how can I shore up this total advantage in a self-interested way? Often they were enthusiastic about the technical knowledge that they um, had marshaled through, you know, let's say university experiences and were eager to apply them. And from, from that observation, it's become important for me to understand, well, what logic was necessary to make it appear so good and benevolent and unproblematic? And that is where, again, those interests in like ideas and culture are really, I think, helpful in, in understanding how I came to approach a lot of my historical actors. But then to your kind of specific point about Northrop and his ideas about the frontier in the department's history, if you walk through the interior department building to this day, you will see murals on every wall that reenact the history of the American frontier in a highly sanitized way, one that is very rarely depicting things as it actually happened. One example, you could see a picture of irrigation in the American West, which is this kind of, the, the romanticized history of it is that the arid West was successfully transformed into a patchwork of farms in keeping with the ideal of Thomas Jefferson. And so there's a beautiful picture of this in the interior department building. Of course, it's not talking about what we know also happened, the, the kind of settler violence toward indigenous peoples, and also the, the huge conflicts around who got to use the water and, and other kinds of environmental problems. So wildfires today in communities that are strapped for water, right? This is, these are all kind of connected in this complex history. So I think about that, what it means that these murals, which had been commissioned in this case that I'm describing through the Works Progress Administration in the FDR era, right? These went up in that, that moment. And this 
helps to construct for the individuals who are working for this institution a narrative of what what their purpose is, like how do they fit into the, the broader story. So to me, it is perhaps unsurprising that, you know, without the kind of critical reflection on what that history was and what it meant, people were willing and eager to say, we're just going to continue that work. It worked the first time around for for whom they don't ask that question, right? It worked for who they assume mattered most, which was kind of this people like themselves. And then, and then moving forward, this has has carried forward a logic of say resource extraction that we today are asking questions about. Well, what were the tolls of that, right? What are what are the kinds of consequences, social and environmental, of the mentality that was all too willing to say let's just keep finding frontiers yeah. <laughs> over and over again. Are there cases where the interior department lived up to its ideals where it said, um, for instance, I think of the one with technical assistance, like that is something you could provide and say, we know how to do this and here's, here's the method. And then you keep your resources. Obviously it didn't happen like that most mm-hmm. of the time, but was there cases mm-hmm. where that didn't actually was serving the sort of humanitarian good, like it said it was. So one way to think about the the question of benefits, perhaps even unintended benefits derived in local context from this, is that there were many people who bought in to the project of international development in the nations that were receiving aid. So there were certainly local stakeholders, say, in Cuba or Afghanistan or Egypt, who were promoting the collaboration with the U.S. government for in for this exchange that it promised of scientific and technical expertise, and broadly we can we can trace ways that that expertise moved in highly unexpected ways from the kind of U.S. perspective. I think of um, an example like Abdullah Tariki, who is a Saudi Arabian who helped to found the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Well, at one point in his career, he had trained in the United States and learned about the oil industry sort of through this kind of scientific and technical exchange network. Did the U.S. intend for whatever knowledge he may have received in those contexts to go found an organization that would be a kind of means of resisting U.S. policies around the world oil market? No. Probably not. One idea that fascinated me in the book was the sort of tensions of expertise as a method of of gaining power. To what extent is saying that there is technical expertise, is that like a legitimate thing? Or does that necessarily, when there's a stronger force, does that always end up becoming extractive in some sense? Well, the expertise claim is, is one that was sincere in many ways, like people who got involved in some of the projects we're describing where resource extraction might be the end result, people certainly had come up at schools like the one where I teach, like MIT, and they they learned a lot and again, had a kind of eagerness to apply that knowledge in certain contexts. Often what happened was people were fairly convinced that their work was apolitical or at least not political in the sense where it might resound of manipulation in in a kind of scheme of world politics. But the idea that technical knowledge is fully apolitical is one that in recent years, people have really challenged, right? So I think that that gets to your question (coughs) a little bit. 
and that we can see we can see that the the technical expertise is being applied and is having political, economic, environmental, and social consequences in a lot of different contexts. So it is helpful to kind of zoom in and try to see, well, what happened in some of these different places. But what I was really interested in was the kind of rationale that did that work of assuming that technical work was apolitical. So someone like Udall, who I opened the book with, is quick to disavow the kind of criticisms he's receiving in Saudi Arabia while on a tour of like oil facilities <laughs> there. And the way he sort of diffuses the criticism is to say, hey, I'm just a natural resources guy. I mean, this isn't quite the direct quote, but he says, you know, I, I just work for the interior department. I just work in natural resources. And that's the errand that I'm on. And the implication he assumes is that people will, will take that as evidence of his disinterestedness. This doesn't really work, but it, it shows, I think, how a lot of people in his position felt about the work that they did. You mentioned in the book, the Canadian Interior Department was closed once national expansion was finished in a sense. So how does that happen? Was that ever possible in the U.S. to shut down the Interior Department? I don't think that it got as as close to coming to fruition as some had feared. But there was a moment in 1905 around the Keep Commission, which was basically a way for the government in in a, a moment that we associate with like the conservationism of Theodore Roosevelt, like and an administrative state that is really oriented to non-human nature. So the the Bureau of Reclamation will get created soon. And and there are large kind of irrigation projects that Interior would kind of come to take on. But in that moment, there were critics of the Interior Department policies, its actions in the American West, in part because it had this job to dispose of natural resources earlier in the 19th century. And that effectively meant privatizing what was being called the public domain. So again, that that moment when the map changed dramatically after the the Continental War in the mid-19th century. And as we know, and especially even just the shorthand knowledge of Theodore Roosevelt, we associate that kind of conservationist fear about natural resources depleting. So the Interior Department had helped to deplete those resources. And there were many critics who called for its closure or at least the closure of the office of the secretary, which would leave smaller bureaus under its mandate intact, probably like the geological survey and what became the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The department managed to get through that controversy in part because it had already taken on some of the role of conservation. So I interpret this moment as one where the department effectively links its agenda with conservation. And it might initially seem like, okay, conservation is the opposite of what they had done before. But on some level, conservation is about resource use. And the department had always been about resource use. The difference is that they're changing the tempo of extraction, and they're also going to have a hand in changing the location of extraction. And this is where the kind of, you know, growth of of um, of conservation in the U.S. in the kind of North American context 
is something that coincides with the expansion of US power into other zones, which entails the extraction of resources. So that I think is, is something that helps to show why the department didn't fade away because its capacities got rerouted into other directions. Now the Canadian example was really fascinating to me. And on some level, they, they certainly retained capacities of continental expansion and settler policies toward native peoples, but they, they did sort of resituate and decentralize that power. Some of it fell um, upon provinces and some of it got sort of disaggregated into things like the, this will be the, the department dealing with natural resources. This will be the department dealing with First Nation and Métis people and their affairs. And, you know, plenty of scholars interested in Canada or mining in Canada would be quick to point out, well, the private sector in Canada will be very much involved in a global kind of mining project. So it's, it's not the case that Canada is, you know, without its footprint in the world, but it does take a kind of different form. And I think the scale is very different where the scale of U.S. power and the scale of the, the federal capacities to support things like U.S.-based companies or U.S. procurement agendas is just significantly greater. So it's one of those interesting moments of, you know, there's like a temptation to to say what would have happened if, and of course we can't fully know, but it is interesting to see those two case studies in parallel and you know, not over determine our, our conclusions about it, but to just say, you know, there, there were other paths that weren't taken. Did other countries copy the expansive model of the Department of Interior in the US or was that sort of unique because of the US's very strong place in the world? The, the Canadian Interior Department is a direct kind of um, analogy in the sense that the Canadian government consciously did mimic what was happening in the United States. Australia has like a, an odd version of the Interior Department. I wouldn't I wouldn't call it as analogous as say the North American version, but the kind of continuities across these zones that are quite far apart in in many ways is less surprising when thinking about their, their distinct histories of settler colonialism and the, the management of territory and resources that each of these um, nations underwent. It's quite different from continental Europe at the same time when many of those processes of what we call enclosure or expansion into the commons and privatization of the commons, say, had unfolded in let's say the 1500s, you know, much, a much earlier period before this kind of bureaucratization of governance, uh, if you will. So I was struck by the fact that ministries of the interior or home departments in other nations, aside from the three that I've mentioned, have very different functions. Those that are often tied to law and security and, and more directed on on the problem of population and surveillance and control than say what is what is unfolding in the interior department, which is so also focused on material landscapes. Was having a, an anti-government secretary of interior during the Reagan years, was that helpful for stopping the sort of imperialist aspects of it? Or did that carry on 
within other departments or within the same department, just not as extensively. So the the kind of parallel that you've picked up on between the Watt moment and that kind of earlier turn of the 20th century moment around privatization, right? Because the, the, the anti-government attitude of Watt was really focused on a specific kind of government regulation that would withdraw public lands from privatization. His goal was privatization, which again is not not expansion, it's a, a kind of different form of it. So in other words, it's, it's the case that it allowed a kind of expansion in other forms that coincided with a broader trend of rising neoliberal policies, of sort of drying up funding for federal agencies, and particularly those parts of federal agencies that did uphold, say, environmental or conservationist laws that were were coming into being. So what Watt wasn't saying was we should defund the geological survey. The geological survey did and continues to do important work in prospecting for minerals. So to say that, oh, we'll keep the government funding there and we will cut the funding on Native American reservations for their healthcare services or their job training or educational things is choosing what government money should do, right? So government money should not care for the kind of social safety net or environmental regulations, but government money should continue a kind of, you know, an expansionist mandate through exploration. So it's very tricky because it shows that in that moment, there were were real consequences to tinkering with the formula as well. And, you know, it's partly that there was no point where people addressed the history that I've described in the book, right? And and said, well, what are the the kinds of consequences of that history? It was more a kind of a part of the part of the partisan struggles of that moment that was politically advantageous to do. That's my interpretation. Going to the closing questions, who is a scholar who had a big impact on your intellectual upbringing? So I have to say my advisor in graduate school, Melanie McAllister, is someone who's really influenced me and influenced me to go to graduate school in a lot of ways, in part because I was really struggling to figure out where I would fit, like what kind of department could support the the curiosities and the questions that I had. As we've discussed, I was having these interdisciplinary questions and I wasn't quite sure where I fit. Well, Melanie's work is something that looked at the cultural foundations of US foreign relations, including the specific case study of US Middle East relations. And I found that her work helped to kind of broaden my understanding of the historical actors that could actively shape U.S. power. So she was thinking about people with ideas and cultural producers who were helping to shape ideas about the Middle East, whether or not they had even been to the Middle East. And and one chapter that was really influential for me, and you can see these connections, involved the energy crises of the 1970s and attitudes toward Arab people and other people in the Middle East around the issue of oil. And she she traces these fascinating connections in the kind of oil discourse of the 1970s to this idea of a common heritage of mankind, right? So how did the US continue to justify involvement and interventions in Middle East politics? The answer was, well, oil is like this common heritage of mankind. (laughs) And it's much like 
you know, the King Tut exhibit that is circulating from Egypt in, in New York at this time. And seeing those connections, I was fascinated. And lo and behold, when I started looking at natural resource ideas in another context, there were real resonances with what she described. So, so I learned a lot about the importance following the kind of worldview of historical actors, in addition to broadening which historical actors might matter to the enactment of U.S. power in the world. And who is a younger scholar people should pay more attention to? I have so, I'm such a fan of so many kind of junior scholars at this moment. I, I think of Monica Kim, whose work on detention centers in the Korean War has really helped us to rethink of these kind of small and difficult to see spaces of U.S. power in, in a kind of context of U.S. empire. Think of Stuart Schrader's work on the history of policing, this counterintuitive history of policing that really is involved in that international development process that we've been talking about in, in this very conversation. And people like Amy Offner and Christy Thornton, who are thinking about hemispheric policies and less seeing it as like a U.S. focused, here's where policy originates in Latin America as the site where it's implemented, they're showing this kind of reciprocal moving of ideas in different case studies. Thornton is looking at Mexico, Offner more at Colombia, but but they're, they're just really rich studies in foreign relations history. I'm super excited for this book that will be coming out by Genevieve Plutario that looks at the kind of gendered labor and, and kind of nationalism in the Philippines in that moment when you know US imperial administrators arrive and try to implement a lot of policies to you know control the the population a highly diverse population that had just seen the the departure of one imperial power the spanish and saw a new imperial power arrive even as there was a great deal of resistance so she is kind of shifting perspective onto a, a group that was really important to this project, including women who are not often at the center of the stories we tell about the Spanish-American War and the Philippine-American War in that 1898 moment. And how do you as a historian read the news in a way that's different from the more standard haphazard manner? Well, there is so much news to keep up with that I think it always is a little haphazard. However, I do think maybe it helps. Maybe it is easier to have a kind of historical background and that I can kind of see news as the latest layer that is on top of another layer that is on top of another layer. And in that sense, you get a sense of where this latest news cycle is coming from or another way of thinking about that. History is the study of change over time. So to kind of see a news article and understand, well, it used to be like this and before that it was like this and before that it was like that, you can kind of just trace almost like a graph, you know, the ups and downs that, that have led to this moment. And I, I think about certain continuities, like sometimes historians read the news and it's like, oh, this is old news, you know, or this is, it seems very repetitive or reminiscent relative to debates in the past. So writing as I do about mineral policy and extraction, I can say, with great confidence that there has long been a kind of claim that there's this huge tension between economic development and environmental well-being. We see that in contemporary debates uh, and certainly the 1970s era and in a different form, the 1950s and before that, you know, so you can see kind of um, 
echoes and reverberations of, of struggles where in a much earlier date, you may be surprised or unsurprised to know that mining companies were insistent that they had jobs to offer, so many jobs, and that anyone who would get in the way of their extractive developments would hurt not only the kind of nation in the sense of depriving them of valued resources, but also those would-be employed individuals in the nation state. Meanwhile, in environmentally minded individuals or even just local communities who were, were happy with how things were and didn't want to see the kind of changes that large-scale mining might bring into their community were finding ways to highlight the, the socioeconomic and kind of environmental problems, the air and, and water quality, for instance, or just the autonomy over shaping the local economy, that those things were, were at stake. And that, you know, this, this dynamic, which sometimes we think of as like a purely national dialogue, is one that has played out in the context of U.S. relations with the wider world as well. Like the question over whether it is desirable that U.S. personnel and institutions should be operating in other nations. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the narrative of what they will offer is pretty similar. You know, your jobs and opportunities for training and and, and a standard of living and, and so on. I do think that the training that I have helps to decode some of the, the news cycle which is not to say that it's it's the case with all kinds of, with all the news that surfaces at any moment. Do current students know more now than Athenian students did in the time of the Peloponnesian War? Such a tricky question. I'll just admit before starting that that's like thousands of miles and years away from my expertise. Yes. So with that kind of caveat, my sense is that that students and the people who might be shepherding students through different through their de development are always grappling with the things that have furnished their present i suppose so i'm i guess my my kind of maybe cop out way of answering this question is to say that the curiosity i think is consistent and and in the sense i think people can better make sense of their present by understanding their past. So it is the case though, that in different moments across time, history has been valued differently, whether there was a kind of lesson around the loss of valued historical knowledge through something as um, uprooting and uh, disastrous as war versus, versus coming at history from a moment of relative peace and stability, you, you see that Sometimes it's taken for granted that historical knowledge will will be available and that, you know, that can help to inform decisions that are made about how to govern or how to organize society. But but I think it is the case that yeah, we, we might need to fight for and make the case for why history is so important and continue to do the work of, at a kind of basic level, holding on to receipts about like, well, what happened? You know, historians spend their time really getting into that, that fine grain, sort of the traces of, of what came before and, and that, that should be valued highly. I would say. Professor Black, thank you for being part of IR Talk. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to IR Talk. Again, if you enjoyed the episode, I would really appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. See you on the next episode.
Thank you.